Hello and welcome to the 2021 Dublin Literary Award Shortlist Podcast, presented as part of International Literature Festival Dublin. Hi, my name is Maeve Higgins. And my name is Jessica Trainer. And in this special podcast series, we're exploring each novel in detail as we chat exclusively to the authors shortlisted for the award. Now, the winner will be announced on the 20th of May as part of International Literature Festival Dublin, which, like the award, is sponsored by Dublin City Council. The award is the world's most valuable annual prize for a single work of fiction in English or translated into English worth €100,000 to the winner or winners. On today's episode, we are looking at Lost Children Archive by Valeria Luiselli. So the New York Times puts it like this. Lost Children Archive is a retelling of the American road novel with a twist. That's so true. In this version, there's no flight from the domestic because the journey has been taken to actually save a marriage and the squalling children are in tow. Um, We're following this artist couple and they set out with two children. There's a five-year-old and a 10-year-old and the characters actually are never named. So they travel from New York to Arizona during a blazing hot summer. And as the family travels west, the bonds begin to fray The parents have these very kind of familiar like nighttime arguments and heated whispers and the fracture really grows between them. And I think the children can sense that too in the way in the way children do. I mean, Jessica, you're a parent, but I feel like kids know like Do you think? Oh, yeah. They're like little sponges. (laughs) They really are. And with my three and a half year old, we have to be so careful now because everything gets repeated. Absolutely everything. Oh, wow. (laughs) The cat and everything like that. The cat was meowing the other day and we kind of threatened to throw her out. And, you know, Abigail intervened and it was a whole big drama. And we realized we have to be more careful about everything. (laughs) (laughs) The poor little thing. Yeah. And there's no, I mean, when you're in a car together too, it's like, okay, all our cards are on the table. Like everyone's going to know what's going on. But um, this book is so, I think, beautiful. There's this ephemera scattered throughout it. There's songs, there's maps, there's um, kind of reprints of little Polaroid pictures. And As the family's journey continues, this bigger story unfolds as well. The kids are trying to make sense of, you know, this crisis that's growing within their family and also the larger one that's engulfing the news, which is the thousands of children who are trying to cross the southwestern border into the U.S. um, but are getting detained or are getting lost in the desert along the way. And similar to uh, other books on the shortlist this year, the perspective shifts. So at first the book is narrated by the mother and later uh, it's narrated by the little boy. And in that way, it's intriguing because you get to see like how parenting works from both sides. And the last thing I might mention is that the the narrator and the, and the author as well, obviously, uh, questioned their role a lot. They're searching, they're watching, and there's this very human disaster of lost children that's happening in front of them. Um, and they're asking, who has the right to a childhood? And there's lots of other questions that tug at us too, like when does storytelling become appropriation? What is our complicity in these stories, in these borders? Whose lives really matter when it comes down to it? But I would say, Jessica, it's a very compassionate book. And, you know, right now where there's more people on the move around the world than there have been since World War II, it's it's very timely. 
Yeah, absolutely. And it is one of these things that we 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 have kind of amnesia about as the human race, this notion that migration is a constant and there are always waves of migration. Um, you know, sometimes they're they're bigger, sometimes they're smaller. Um, but the book isn't set right now, is it? It's set a couple of years in the past, is it? Yeah, so um, I think it takes place around 2014. And, you know, I, was, I, I live in the US and that was the time, I'm sure it probably made, you know, international headlines, but there was a huge number of children often unaccompanied. Um, that year there was 80,000 children. Now I'm talking about like, you know, teenagers down to infants, to toddlers, and they were detained in, in less than a year. Most of them were from Central America and... And um, Valeria Luiselli's last book looked at these same kids, right? The ones who ended up in detention, who were applying for asylum. And uh, that was a nonfiction book that she wrote called Tell Me How It Ends about her time as a translator for these kids. You know, she's a um, Mexican, Mexican-born woman herself. Um, and she comes at this humanitarian issue from so many angles. I think, you know, I see her anyway as an activist and she she comes in as a writer and as a parent. Yeah, it's so interesting what you said about the notion of who who has a right to be a child. And I think that that's something, again, that resonates with so many of the books on the short list, this notion about how our identities are are formed to a certain extent in, in childhood. And I think, you know, from my reading of the book, there's such an anxiety about that, even with the, the children in the novel who are deeply loved. You know, they're, they're not the, the kids being detained at the borders, but they are children being raised in the dangerous and difficult world of today. And I think that, you know, she she paints a fascinating picture of parenthood across that spectrum. Yeah, because they're still in danger, right? From, you know, not as as direct as the danger facing the kids at the border, but, um, you know, there's risks being a parent. And I love that she has this quote where she says, parenthood seems at times like teaching an extinct, complicated religion there are more rituals and rationales behind them. <laughs> oh my God, I know that. The sense that if you allow one thing to slip, the entire house of cards will come down, yeah. you know? So <laughs> if, you, if you give the child a biscuit before dinner, the, the world will end yeah. <laughs> because it'll lead to this and this and this. Yeah, that really captures it all right. <laughs> yeah, and she has, you know, it's, it's, it's a serious book. Uh, it's a serious topic, but there are definitely these moments of like compassion and levity that she works in. And also, um, you know, she's an absolutely gorgeous writer. She goes for analogies, but at, at other points, she makes a case for really direct, really honest language. And I wanted uh, to ask you, Jessica, if you could read that part about, um, it's just a short little extract, and it's basically about writing what we mean, using the words that we mean. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's gorgeous. I love these, these whole sections. Um, and there's actually an Anne Carson poem in one of these sections, but they remind me of Anne Carson's work, this lovely collaging. And this uh, is one of the loose notes. Euphemisms hide, erase, coat. Euphemisms lead us to tolerate the unacceptable and eventually to forget. Against a euphemism, remembrance, in order to not repeat. Remember terms and meanings, their absurd disjointedness, term, our peculiar institution, meaning slavery, epitome of all euphemisms, term, removal, meaning expulsion and dispossession of people from their lands, term, placing out, meaning expulsion of abandoned children from the East Coast, term, relocation, meaning confining people in reservations, 
term reservation, meaning a wasteland, a sentence to perpetual poverty, term removal, meaning expulsion of people seeking refuge, term undocumented, meaning people who will be removed. It's really like a poem, isn't it? It reads like a poem, especially when you read it it aloud. It actually is, you know. Such power to it, I think. You know, that sense of just kind of bedding down into that that language, that unornamented, almost scientific language. It just, um, it really brings you up short as a reader. Yeah, she doesn't, she does not pull her punches, you know, and and like she's dead right too because um I write about migration sometimes you know I've been to the US uh border with Mexico and the violence there is something that I think is really undercovered by you know the media and and by artists and it's the militarization of that border it puts people in mortal danger you know and um Valeria Luiselli she doesn't look away from that so I thought as a good, um, there's a good scene, I'd love you to read Jessica, and and that's about the danger. Um, in this case, it's about the danger of these train journeys that migrants often make up, up to the US border. Yeah, this one really resonated with me, Maeve, as I've done some work with migrants myself. And I've heard similar stories of of people, especially from, from Afghanistan, trying to get across Europe along railway lines and the dangers there. Um, and this uh, little extract called The Sixth Elegy really captures the, the dread of that. The yard where the children had boarded the first train and the dark jungle after it were long gone. Aboard that first train, they'd cross the dark, wet jungles of the south, making their way up towards the mountains. In a small village, they'd had to jump off and catch another train that came only a few hours later. On this new gondola, better somehow, less grim, painted brick red, they climbed to the cold cusps of the mountains in the northeast. The train rose high above the clouds there, almost floating, it seemed, above the thick, milky blanket of clouds that stretched far towards the eastern sea. It carried them up along the winding mountain path above ravines and next to plantations laboriously crafted by many human hands into hostile rocky ridges. Far from towns and checkpoints, human and inhuman threats, but also somehow closer to death, the children were able to sleep unshaken by night terrors for the first time in many moons. They were all asleep and did not hear or see the woman who, also asleep, rolled off the side of the roof of their gondola. Tumbling awake as she went down the jagged ridge, she'd torn open her stomach on a broken branch and kept on falling until her body thumped flat into abrupt emptiness. The first living thing to notice her the next morning was a porcupine, its spines erect and its tummy ballooned on larch and crab apples. It sniffed one of her feet, the one that was unshod, and then circled around her, uninterested, sniffing its way towards a bunch of drying poplar catkins. Oh. Thanks, Jessica. Yeah, I think um, it's devastating. As you said, it happens around the world, you know, because of borders and it's a real danger and it's one faced by migrants all over. So I had so much to discuss with this author and I felt really lucky to be able to speak with her. So I hope you enjoy. So when I first moved to the US, I realized that in this country, I'm a white person. I was kind of assigned that identity with its history, with its meaning. Now, in your book, you do not even name the family. It seems that you took care not to categorize them in any way. And I'm assuming 
like everything you do in your writing is deliberate. So could you help me to understand this choice that you made for them? Um, yeah, sure. I mean, yeah, that was definitely deliberate. I didn't just forget <laughs> to, to see where they were from or how they looked. Um, the family is unnamed. Uh, the narrator is uh, the mother and the wife. Uh, there's a husband, there's a boy, and there's a girl. And they, they don't have names. They acquire names, kind of nicknames within the family later on in the novel, but they don't start off with a with a very fixed identity. And of course, the very first layer of a very fixed identity is a name, right? Especially if you are, um, I mean, if you think of um, any uh, foreign person to a country, a country like the United States, where I am myself a Latina writer or a Hispanic writer or a Mexican mm. writer, if I give my characters names like Valeria, Daniela, Maria, a lot of things are assumed of my characters mm. and then I think um, it's just a good opportunity for the reader to be a little bit lazy right to just like project a bunch of uh, cultural stereotypes without having to really do the effort of ask himself or herself or themselves uh, what they are really bringing to the reading in terms of their own uh, baggage of prejudice right mm -hmm. when when uh, characters are not named, where it isn't said where they come from, then the reader has to start asking themselves uh, what they are maybe assuming. Yeah. And um, we always are as readers, right? We always are. Yeah, period. Definitely. Things. And I, 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 I wanted uh, there to be a conversation in, in this novel between the reader and the text where the reader had to not only just passively agree to what was being written, but but also hold themselves accountable to what is being written. Also ask themselves their role in the conversation uh, between the book and their own their own preconceptions. Oh, it's cool. It because um, it definitely caught me out. Like there was a, a, there's like a time when the dad it's revealed like he doesn't speak Spanish, and then I had to like reorganize my brain <laughs> around the book. <laughs> I love migration stories and I read a lot of them and sometimes it's horrifying how the the writer explains it to the re like I remember reading like you know she put her brown arms around her sister's brown neck and it's just <laughs> the overdetermination of everything right and of right. course I'm a Latina writer well, people are going to assume um, that the family that I'm writing about is necessarily a Hispanic Latinx family, right? Mm -hmm. But um, but maybe they're not. Not all of them, you know. And so, yeah, the, the father indeed does not even speak Spanish. Um, how? And then the question for me becomes really interesting as a reader as well. Like, how exactly? What, what you just said, Maeve. How does a reader reorganize an information that's been accumulated until? whatever page it is, it comes kind of late into the novel. I love how you talk about, um, and you think about like us readers being in conversation with the book. And I think another conversation that's happening with Lost Children Archive is all these references to sources that you put throughout it so that we're, we're, not, we're in conversation with you, the writer. We're in conversation with the family in the book. But also there's these texts and images and, you know, other writers, there's there's notes, there's photos. It was almost comical to me because I was like, oh, are we allowed to do this? Like, I was like, this is a, 
it, it worked it worked so well for me but um I felt like a real square because it took me by surprise and so what made you decide like actually I'm not just reading all this stuff myself and then like kind of acting like I came up with this <laughs> like I'm literally going to physically put these I'm going to put Anne Carson in here I'm going to put a photo of a little girl like where did you where did you get that from um yeah I I mean I rely a lot on other people's work um to be able mm-hmm. to think clearly you know I really there's I don't see how I could create anything without the help of of other people's of other people's work and of other people's minds and yeah. ideas and so I am constantly in the process of writing especially but I mean I guess constantly but especially when I'm deep into um into any project i'm always looking at other people's work and consulting it mm-hmm. kind of like almost like an I Ching sometimes you know for, for guidance and direction and and i and i i can't my work is very much a product of that you know and i i, I think that fiction you know the the, the original definition of fiction the etymological origin of fiction um is finxit or fingere from from Latin, and that meant to to mold something out of clay, right? To make something out of out of a material that was already there. And I think of my fiction very much like that, right? As as giving shape to matter that's already that was already there. They're just gi- giving it a shape, and in the process of giving it shape, allowing all the kind of fingerprints and accidents to also just remain there, right? To to remain visible. And so, so in my books too, all the books and uh, works of art and archives and recordings or whatever it is that, that helped me mold uh, something into a shape are, are there, are present as part of the, yeah, the fingerprints um, of the process of making, right? And I think that that also, I mean, beyond, beyond any aesthetic choice is also um, a choice of, um, kind of opening up, I guess I, I don't know if it's maybe the maybe the word is not epistemological. Maybe that's too kind of far-reaching, but but it is a choice that has to do with with knowing, with how we come to know things and our process of acquiring knowledge, right? And I I think that allowing the pieces with which I made another piece to be there then allows a reader to go out and and look for those other things that yeah. make one piece right allows for a reader to 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 navigate like well beyond my own book and i like books that take me to other books i like books that make, make me curious about other works of art and so i try to also write books that that take people to to other to other people's books well you know thank you for that because it's such a generous impulse and I mean, what you're saying is, I think, you know, every great writer is, as you said, like molding clay that's been there already, but just not everyone is as willing to share that (laughs) or to be, you know, vulnerable and strong enough to say like, these are some of the pieces here. Look, you can look too, like check this out. And it's a really generous impulse that I, that I think helps me a lot as a reader too, you know. So I just wanted to thank you for that. And also, I wonder, as you are this kind of wide, deep reader, is there, is there anything you're reading at the moment that's helping you to make sense of, of today? 
Um, <laughs> to make sense of today, maybe. I don't know if I can make sense of today. <laughs> but um, I need an answer. I need three names and I need them ASAP. <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> That's a big question. Um, I'm, I mean, I'm reading some pretty dark shit that's not making me, mm. uh, helping me make sense of anything. It's rather like opening my eyes to some difficult things. I'm writing about uh, obstetric violence in, in context of incarceration, uh, but I'm also reading some, some, some more beautiful things, I guess. Wow. I'm, kind of, I'm always writing about different things. I'm always working on several projects at the same time. So I need that kind of variety. I need, I need, I need to allow one thing to breathe and go on to something else and then go back to it. Um, and I also teach, what is, which is something that I love and keeps me, keeps me alive really, like, in, like intellectually and emotionally vibrant because I, I have to continue like thinking and reading in order to face uh, the terrifying body of students, <laughs> terrifyingly bright, bright and brilliant body of students that I teach. So I- And they have so much energy. They they do so. I, I'm, I'm reading a lot of a lot of philosophy again. I I studied philosophy, not literature, in in the UNAM in Mexico City. And when the pandemic began, I kind of went back to those origins. I went back to like to reading the books that I'd underlined when I was 18, you know, and and trying to like understand things again. So I've been teaching in my creative writing workshops. I've been teaching um, some works of philosophy again. So I've been rereading Plato. I've been rereading Foucault. Um, but I'm trying to teach them and pair them with, with writers that I wasn't taught at their age. Um, mm-hmm. so like, um, for example, I taught, I taught them Plato's Phaedrus, which is all about, uh, sort of love. It's a theory of love and knowledge, but paired with Audre Lorde's brilliant essay, um, on the uses of the erotic, oh, which wow. is maybe one of the most beautiful essays. It's not an essay. It's actually a talk. Uh, but it's so well, I mean, it's, it's an essay slash talk, one of the most beautiful uh, pieces of writing about the relationship between uh, desire and creativity. Oh, fascinating. And are these undergraduates that you're, t- you're talking to? Yeah, these are undergraduates. They're pretty bizarrely smart. Though. I, I, don't, I was definitely like them when I was their age. Well, I feel like um, Generation Xers are, you know, they're just thinking about all of these existential crises that like were maybe just after our time if you know what I mean like I'm a millennial I think you're a millennial but like these are kids who um are really facing it you know even in sort of lucky wealthy countries and they get to go to college but it's still there's still some very real stuff heading for them down the pipeline so so I was going to ask uh just back to last children archive and the I, I think it was 2014 was the kind of time when these you know thousands of unaccompanied you know undocumented children basically uh were arriving and now it's it falls out of the headlines it comes back again and at the moment right it's April 2021 and you know it's in it's in the news again so where do you come into that as somebody who you know met volunteered with helped with and later wrote into fiction some of these children's stories where do you stand today like I mean how are you feeling are you kind of in campaigning mode or how are you doing um I mean I am no less worried than Mm. uh, the 2014 with this like the surge began and the, I mean, children had been coming to the United States undocumented for many years. Um, mm. 
of course, but it was really 2014 that there was a significant surge of arrivals. The the big change um, in the Trump administration was the amount of children being incarcerated while they waited for their asylum cases to be resolved. There were about 2,000 children uh, in so-called shelters. They're, they're really detention spaces, incarceration spaces. They call them shelters, but they're, they're not very sheltering. And there were 2,000 children. During the Trump administration, there were around 14,000 children. That's the official number. There were possibly more. And that, the thing is that the mass incarceration has been the growing trend for many, many decades now in the United States. And there is no, there will be no end to this um, as long as incarcerating human beings uh, continues to be profitable. So as long as the industrial prison, the prison industrial complex remains a business, there will always be um, a humanitarian crisis, not only within the undocumented community. Right now, there is, of course, they also became a target of, of one of the many police branches of this country, ICE in this case. But, but it, it really is, it boils down to mass incarceration. Immigration policy has become uh, another kind of hand that feeds the, the prison industrial complex monster. So my, my um, area of focus right now, what I'm interested in, in thinking about is, is that, about I mean, prison abolition, but also, of course, uh, how a writer, how writers and teachers of writing and literature can um, have any kind of positive intervention in immigration detention spaces. And some, a couple of years ago, I, I gave a creative writing workshop that was really... It was really a, a beautiful project in, in, in the sense that the, the girls that uh, we taught there produced uh, an amazing body of work, a series of fanzines, uh, not about immigration, you know. We didn't expect yeah. them to, to write about their stories or anything like that because, I mean, all, all that every system does is reduce them to only their migration experience, to only their label of refugees. So they, they wrote fanzines about... Um, about environmental crisis, about food, about their hometowns, about their grandmothers, about their maternal lineage, about many really interesting things. Um, and I, of course, COVID shut that down. Um, right. And but I, I plan to to return to that. But of course, I need to. What I would, what I would like to do is train other writers and teachers of writing yeah. to do that work too, because it was just me and my niece really. Uh, so it, sometimes it felt like we were just like, you know, I don't know, like throwing glasses of water into the ocean. And, and that, but that this, even just that experience, I mean, the way we thought about it was, you know, if um, this particular diaspora has the chance to, to be given the, the tools for writing their story eventually, they will. Many of them will. You know, many of them, they will write movies. They will write uh, speeches. They will write poetry. As all generations who have been um who have been part of a great migration have eventually been able to write their story right um so the the idea is to be able to just give them those tools um well i i think that's that's like a magnificent idea and i also not that you need my <laughs> approval but like also what you're saying about the prison industrial complex the border industry and even the fact that you are talking about this there are so few americans that I think 
fully understand the amount of their their own money, like their taxpayer dollars, that go to this industry. It is mighty. It's growing every year. It's billions and billions of dollars. So I think the fact that you're just like following the money and getting that story out, I I can't believe that a lot of our listeners are Irish, right? And like to, to fully understand how much money is spent in the US on billions. policing these, you know, billions, more than schools. That's what I was just going to say. You know, we're, we are a very submissive society here in the, in the US. Mm-hmm. That we, like there, I don't understand how Americans are not just always out in the street protesting the fact that there's no uh, public health care, um, yep. access to like real good public uh, medicine, uh, and public education. I mean, I come mm-hmm. from a country that's really messed up, Mexico. I received 100% public free education at a university level that was wow. really top, top quality education um, and for free. For, well, not for free, taxpayer money, right? Um, yeah. And yet in the United States, there isn't really, uh, there, there isn't, the public system is not quite public. It still costs a lot of money. Uh, for the universities, at least for higher education, uh, same with medicine, and yet the the amount of taxpayer money that we give to to arms, war, and policing is insane, right? Like, so I, I don't understand. It's very difficult to understand that we just kind of allow allow this to happen. Yeah, and I might be being too generous by saying I don't think I don't think Americans know. Like, I'm not I'm not sure what the deal is. But back in 2015. Um, he wrote, it is never inspiration that drives you to tell a story. It is a combination of anger and clarity. So my question is, when do you know that that combination like, is at the right ratio? And when are you ready to kind of produce a piece of work that's, that's explaining exactly what you want to say? How do you know when you're ready, basically? That's, that's a really good question. And I ask myself that question every day, Maeve. Um, <laughs> but not with that clarity, not with the same clarity that you're asking it with. Like I just, every day I sit down and work and most of the days I don't produce anything that I'm happy with. And then there's one day that something good happens and then maybe there's another, and then maybe there's 10 days a year that are really great. And then the most are mediocre and then some are like, you know, but that's how it is. You know, I, it's like the, <laughs> during, during COVID, um, because we were just locked in, in the house all the time. Yeah. And I noticed, um, started noticing the, the very like repetitive nature of the soundscape outside my window. And noticed uh, in March last year, a very optimistic ice cream uh, vendor with his truck would come by to see if someone would come out and buy him ice creams. Of course, no one would leave the house to go buy ice cream in the middle of the pandemic. Yet the the ice cream truck uh, came by twice a day at exactly the same hour every day, you know, Uh, sounding like, uh, you know, the the, the song that that most people find very irritating, that little ice cream truck song. And uh, that was my alarm every day to like sit down and write. Um, If I wasn't, it was like, you know, this guy does this. He still, he he knows, he thinks that one day someone's going to come out and buy him an ice cream. I just need to like have the same faith in reality that if I sit down, eventually something's going to happen. You know, if I sit down and write, eventually one line is going to come out or two or three or a paragraph. 
So when do you know that um, the combination of anger and clarity is just the right one? You don't know. So you just have to sit down and write every day because it might be that day. Okay, that's really solid advice. I was hoping for some magic sprinkle that you could tell me some kind of secret (laughs) to writing. (laughs) You're like, on Tuesdays at three, you just... (laughs) You just need to catch it. It might just be, it might just be, but you know, no. So you just have to wait and see. Mm. (laughs) Um, So, you know, something that I loved about Last Children Archive is that it's so personal, right? Like to this family, they're literally in a car on top of each other, like sleeping in the same motel rooms. It's so, so personal. Um, And then it's also extremely political. And so we learn that like, even if what's happening which, you know, the the news coming into their car is about these poor kids who are streaming across the border and it's not happening to them, right? But the family in some way is absorbing what's happening. So I suppose, how do you deal with this in your, in your work, trying to paint this picture of a family that's very real and, and then without being too clunky, sort of explaining to us, the reader, like the personal is political. Right. Um, the, the, the thing is that my assumption is that the personal is political, you know, that I don't need to show it really. that It just is. And, and if it wasn't clear to us growing up in the 80s and 90s, perhaps, I mean, you know, we, us that were born in the 80s, um, I'm assuming that you were born in the 80s, Maeve. Um, yeah. Yeah. 81. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, 89. Huh. <laughs> so if you're born in the 80s and 90s you know kind of post-cold war you had your your adolescence in the post-cold war there were years of what seemed what seemed like relative peace uh, we didn't go through the world wars we hadn't gone through a global pandemic until last year uh, we hadn't gone through the experience uh, in the uh, so-called Western world um, of uh, an authoritarian uh, fascist government, um, there were a lot of things, you know, that, that 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 we just had not experienced. I think. I mean, also like coming from Latin America, the dictatorships in the Southern Cone had ended in the eighties, and like like we we didn't have, I think, a very or I I certainly didn't have a very close personal acquaintance with with um the sense of the world coming to an end you know and um but but something did did start to change i think very very dramatically i mean obviously during the trump administration but already there was something in the obama administration that was gearing up towards that and in the world more at large i mean with with pockets of fascism and 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 ultra right wing everywhere, you know, and I think that um, that if 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 we hadn't understood then that um, if we hadn't understood before that the personal is of course political and vice versa, there's no way to to draw to draw a line anymore. There's no boundary. Yeah, it's really true. I think as well with the the children in the back of the car listening and then the, the parents realizing how they were taking it in. I was thinking about my childhood in Ireland where the, you know, the so-called troubles in Northern Ireland did not impact me at all. Like I live right down the other end of the country, but they went in like <laughs> somehow they went in and like, I realize that now that I'm older. So, so I just think you did that really beautifully. And I did want to ask you about, uh, you know, writing kids and 
can you speak to how is that useful? Because I feel like fiction is imaginary, right? And kids do so much stuff that's imaginary. So then why don't more people do that? Or is it too is it too risky because you don't want to be putting words in kids' mouths? I don't know, but I'd love to hear your take on it. Yeah, um it's a great question, I think. Um thing is that you I don't think one can write convincingly um and authentically from a generic child's perspective like there's no such mm-hmm. thing as a generic 10 year old or a seven year old you know um there is really no such thing you have to um really you know, create that it's going to sound a bit esoteric maybe but like create that soul inside you you know like m- make it in your imagination as a writer and then inhabit it completely in order to be able to write from that consciousness um i guess it might look a little bit like like when a when an actor has to um has to play a part a character and must really really get acquainted with the entirety of that of that character's soul uh in order to not simply deliver lines but actually be that that person convincingly and then in a, in a deep way, honestly, right? And I think it's, it's similar. You, you don't just um, think, oh, what would a 10-year-old say about this? That's impossible. That's bullshit. There's no, there's, there's no such a thing. You have to really kind of just act, like really, really like allow that, that soul, that consciousness, that sense of humor, that gaze to kind of slowly grow inside you and let that person kind of inhabit you. You're kind of haunted by that, that being, uh, your beings, the ones that you're writing uh, from, and then it's possible to write from them. And then it's, and then it's beautiful. And then that, that is what writing is. That, that is the funnest part of it, like really inhabiting another consciousness and writing from there, like really just being there. Um, but it takes a lot of time. It takes me a lot of time. Like I have, it takes me, I mean, it's never taken me less than a year or so to to bring that into existence, and then only can I inhabit it, and then or inhabit that that gaze, so to speak, and, and then be able to play with it and play in the way you you said that um, you know, like children are always imagining. Yeah, I mean, and I think writing is a lot like like playing. You know, Julio Cortázar used to say this, but it's 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 playing, but it's very serious play. You know, the way that children are very serious about games, and if you if you don't abide by the rules that you yourself made up, yeah. then you're like out, you know? Uh, so it's cool, but it's very serious play. Oh, beautiful. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for that. And uh, thank you for your insight into, you know, into your process and into this incredible book, Lost Children Archive. It's just so stunning and I'm thrilled that it's been nominated. And um, thank you so much, Valeria, for joining us. Thanks for listening and be sure to tune in to the other episodes as we count down to the 2021 Dublin Literary Award winner announcement. And wherever you're listening from, you are invited to join us for the online award ceremony on Thursday, the 20th of May. You can book your free ticket at www.ilfdublin.com and browse all the other fantastic events in this year's International Literature Festival Dublin programme. 